it sounds so simple, but you know, it takes a long period of time to be able to achieve those changes. We know that acutely, like if, if you put on um, a weighted vest, for example, we get an immediate compromise in an exercise performance. But that doesn't tell us how a person would respond if they were training with that vest continuously. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name's Steph Gaskell. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, researcher and doing some lecturing at uh, Monash University in Melbourne and I'm joined by my colleague and fellow sports dietitian, lecturer, researcher, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? I'm good, thanks, Steph. Just had the uh, the SDA conference over the weekend, albeit virtual, as we talked about last week. So it was good to uh, hear a bit of sports nutrition professional development for the first time in a while. So that was always nice. And um, for those of us who work in the sort of the state national institute system or for the national sporting organisations, there was a also a, a forum the day before that as well, which was really good as well. So, yeah, I haven't had uh, sort of sat down and, and done a conference either virtual or face-to-face for, for quite a while now so it was kind of refreshing to sit down and do that albeit I had to do it from home with kids running around and running back and forwards between the conference and the kids and the conference and the kids but um yeah no it was it was it was good it was refreshing and something pretty special happened at this uh conference which I'm gonna say because you probably wouldn't say it um you got awarded uh, SDA um, fellowships, which are awarded to accredited sports dietitians who have achieved markers of excellence in their chosen practice, as well as their service to SDA. Um, and there's not a huge amount of people that have been awarded this, Alan. Um, and you're now sitting there along the likes of people like Professor Louise Burke, Dr. Helen O'Connor, you've got Karen Inge, like there's there's a huge amount of like impressive people. Um, and I always say how bloody impressed I am with, with you and your knowledge and your service. So um, yeah, congratulations on that, really well-deserved and um, great to see you get um, acknowledgement for all that you do um, in the area. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it was very unexpected, I must say, because as you said, you look at those, that list of names and, you know, I think up until this year there was only 11 fellows and I think nine or ten of them were pretty much the founders of the organisation back in 1996. I mean, I was still in high school in 1996. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's um, yeah, it was something I certainly hadn't expected, certainly not at this stage of my career. So, um, yeah, very, very humbled. Um, very blown away when I, I got the call from the SDA board and said we we want to nominate you for a fellowship. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. And um, yeah, we, they haven't inducted fellows for for quite some time actually in SDA. And so there was actually eight of us this time around. Um, and you know some some very big names, including today's guest actually. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, Steph, uh, obviously plenty of presentations at the conference, uh, including one from yourself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your presentation? Yeah, yep. Um, so mine is kind of um, like it's an, uh, an extra piece, I guess, uh, to what we looked at when I 
back a while ago did did my honours research uh, project, which was basically yeah looking at the the impact that um, twenty four hour high or low FODMAP diet had on uh, gastrointestinal kind of integrity function symptoms. Um, and then as part of that study, Alan, we um, were very lucky for the participants to donate some of their um, stool um, to us. Uh, and um, basically what we, were, what we had a look at there is um, the impacts that a high and low um, 24-hour diet prior to exercise, um, the impact that that type of diet um, had on the participants' um, level of short-chain, what we call short-chain fatty acids, um, in in the in the stools as well as in the in the plasma, um, and basically what we saw from from our research was that although on a low FODMAP diet we see that we get an improvement in reducing severity of symptoms for individuals. So we still have same incidence, but we get a reduction in severity of, of symptoms. What we actually saw on the other end is that when we followed a high FODMAP diet, um, we actually had um, uh, a, a, a reduced injury um, to, to our gut. Um, and um, we still, again, though, it's important for, for people to know, we still had substantial injury in both of those, on both of those diets because of the um, level of exercise stress we were imposing, which was running for two hours um, at 60% in the heat. Um, but what we saw is on a high FODMAP diet, it, it appeared to be in, in some cases a bit protective to the gut. And so trying to work out, well, why is that? Um, is possibly because of this um, increased amount of short-chain fatty acids compared to when we're following a, a low FODMAP diet. And some of these short-chain fatty acids, are, some of our listeners might have heard of things like butyrate and propionate and those types of things. So these are things produced by the bacteria in your gut. So they naturally produce these. Uh, and so the theory is with um, the high FODMAP diet, they're producing more of these, which either means that um, you're feeding the bacteria more or there's more bacteria down there or, or better types of bacteria down there, some combination of those. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And um, we know that these short-chain fatty acids, particular ones, can be yeah protective um, to the gut. They can help with improving the barrier to the gut um, and help our kind of immune system defend things and, and things like that. So... Yeah, so that, that was a, a pretty um, neat finding and we're still writing up the paper for that and, and doing further analysis. So I guess stay tuned for that probably in 2022, I reckon, because we've got a fair bit of other work to, to get through. <laughs> mm. Also really important from the, the uh, research that I looked at in terms of the, the role that FODMAP has on you know, short-chain fatty acids and, and it um, possibly the high FODMAP diet being being protective. Um, it's not saying, um, you know, that if I get gut symptoms uh, that I shouldn't follow a, you know, a low FODMAP diet in the lead-up to my event. Um, so just want people to be careful about misinterpreting that um, information um, so I, th I think the important point that we, we 
have said from our um, previous research is that if um, a low FODMAP diet 24 hours before you going into exertional stress is going to be beneficial, um, well, that that's okay because it's only, you know, a short period of time that we're doing that. And then also during exercise, we're consuming things that can be protective to the gut, like the carbohydrate. So I think the important message is just to get people not to be alarmed um, about if they do follow a low FODMAP diet, that it's going to be doing all this injury to the gut. Yeah, yeah. And if anyone's not 100% sure about that or wants a more detailed explanation, I think you covered it really well in that previous episode we did on FODMAPs, which was episode 21A. So people can go back and have a listen to that for a bit more, bit more detail on that. Yeah. But um, what about you, Alan? You, and you also, I believe, won, um, wasn't it like best poster? Um, yeah. I think. And, yeah, and like I said to you, it was just, yeah, really nice and um, a clear clear message. So, yeah, what were you telling, telling your SDA peers? Yeah, so mine was looking around sodium requirements during exercise. Um, we talked a little bit about this, I think, in the episode around, you know, do I need a sweat test? Um, but yeah. probably didn't go into it in detail, so maybe we'll come back to that in a future episode and go through that in a bit more detail. But um, using some, some mathematical equations to try and predict what people's sodium needs would be in different exercise scenarios um, based on, you know, how much they lose both fluid and electrolytes in their sweat and then how much fluid they drink during exercise and putting all of those things together and saying, okay, how much sodium do they need to consume during exercise to maintain their blood sodium concentration stable? Um, because as far as we know, that's the, that's sort of the key thing that you need from sodium during exercise uh, in terms of, you know, why you would want to replace it. Um, so what I tried to do is sort of um, look at three real-world situations uh, and cross kind of a broad spectrum of, you know, exercise intensities and duration. So I had a soccer match as one example, uh, a two-hour two and six-minute marathon, so, you know, elite marathon running is one example, and then a 100K ultramarathon as another example in about 12 hours and 20 minutes, I think I had. It was just a figure I plucked out of a, a paper somewhere. Um, and so then what we looked at is said, okay, well, we're aiming for a certain amount of body weight loss from sweat during those, so we're drinking enough to, to minimise the loss to that. Um, and then four different sweat sodium concentrations, four different sweat rates, or sorry, three different sweat rates. Um, and then plug all of those into the equation and how much sodium do you actually need to, um, to you know, keep your, your blood sodium concentration stable. And um, basically the finding from that was that the only time you required sodium was in the ultramarathon scenario. Uh, and even then only if you had a very high sweat sodium concentration uh, and a fairly high sweat rate and you are pretty aggressively replacing that fluid uh, and as I said, you know, maybe in a future episode, we'll, we'll talk through that in a bit more detail about what that sort of all means and, and how that all works. Um, but I think what it showed quite nicely was that the amount of fluid you replace during exercise is probably the, the most important thing in determining whether you need to replace sodium or not. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. yes, yeah, one won a won the best poster competition for that and also the People's Choice Award. So that was nice. Ooh, bloody hell, you were on a roll. Yeah, so I get a copy of the textbook I won, the copy of the textbook that you wrote a chapter for, which you just got yours delivered the other day, I saw. Yeah, you also wrote in there. No, not that one. I did a different one. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, well, you get to read about all my wisdom and then, you know, yeah. then that sort of just 
gives you kind of confirmation of why you're doing this podcast with me. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, well, very, very well deserved. Um, uh, you're a bloody hard worker, and you you help out a lot of people in this in this area. And um, yeah, so uh, awesome, awesome to see. Um, so on the long munch, we, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Um, and it's generally the stuff that you talk about, you know, in your training sessions or um, post, post session. Uh, and we, we try and basically break it down um, into, um, I guess, two parts. Like we, how we've got this is we have a part A, which is usually... Um, a chat with a, a researcher or it might be a coach um, and then the part B is usually an athlete or again it might be might be a coach and we try and um, put some of that information into really practical um, easy to understand um, messages so that you are able to potentially implement that into into your um, training if it fits so we are up to episode 23a and i know a lot of um listeners uh have been excited for this one it would it comes out of a question um from one of our listeners and that that is does lena equal faster and we're extremely lucky to have um associate professor gary slater um join us on this um uh, talking about this topic it's our 45th episode so far and we've got a very special one lined up that I'm super excited um, for our 50th. But we're going to keep a lid on that one. Yeah. Um, but um, in terms of social media shout outs and, and questions, our, we, had, we had a couple of those this week. Yeah, yeah. So um, you were contacted by, I think it's Alexandra. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation. So apologies if it's not. Uh, he's a trail runner over in France, uh, and he contacted you um, on the back of, uh, I think, the FODMAP episodes. Yeah, yes. And they seem to be very popular episodes. We got a lot of feedback from those ones, probably more than we have on any other topic we've ever done on the show. So, um, yeah, good to, to hear that people are interested in that uh, and in sort of the gastrointestinal side of things. Um, and I, th- I think it also just shows, particularly in the ultra-running community, how common an issue it is and how much people out there are, are potentially struggling with it as well. So, um, yeah, great to, to hear that. It's good to see that we've got listeners from a bit of everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you want to hear a bit more about gastrointestinal issues, we, we said before, you know, episode 21 was dedicated to FODMAP specifically. But, Steph, you did uh, a, a more general episode about gastrointestinal issues. I'm just looking up the episode number right now. Mm-hmm. It was episode 7. So episode 7A, if you go back there, um, the question was, why do I get gut problems during exercise? Um, so if you go back to that, that gives a much more broader overview of what we call exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome. Uh, and, Steph, you uh, sort of explained that really well in that episode. And we also had our athlete episode 7B uh, with Spanish um, pro triathlete in Aniko Lanos, who was someone who actually came, flew out to Australia to uh, do a gut assessment at the clinic at Monash because he was having major problems with his, with his Ironman events uh, and was able to overcome those. So it's a really nice story of uh, how that assessment worked for him. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we also had a uh, another contact from uh, Marzia Bell, who is a sports dietitian up in Queensland, uh, who saw um, the little social media teaser we put out for today's episode, actually, um, and said how much she was looking forward to to hearing on this episode of, you know, does Lena equal faster and, and hearing from Gary in particular. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And uh, you can contact us on all your popular social media platforms. So we're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and if you would like to listen to us, which we would love you to listen to us or forward it on to your, to your peers if you think it might be of interest, um, we're on all your popular um, podcast platforms at The Long Lunch. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if anyone has a particular question they'd like answered on the podcast, you know, this topic this week was a specific request from Lionel um, way back in January. I looked it up the other day um, and we've just been waiting to, to pin down Gary for this because he's been very busy, as we'll hear in a minute, uh, getting ready for the Olympics. Um, but, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us with a suggestion for a particular topic to cover uh, or if you just want to give us any feedback on the podcast in general, um, yeah, feel free to contact us through one of those social media channels. And, uh, Al, I think you you probably beat me in, in these rants, actually. You seem to get a bit more fired up. Um, is that because you've got kids around and you're just wanting to get rid of this extra stress? Well, it's recorded at night time. The kids are going to bed. But maybe it's just the build-up over the day. It yeah, yeah. makes me good. angry. Uh, so I'm going to let you start this one off and then I'm going to see if I can kind of, like, get into the peak and, and help you help you see if I can fire you up in the process yeah, yeah see yeah. if I can make you madder than me yeah <laughs> so it's one of those things we always talk about with these episodes there's things that you hear or um or see uh athletes do or say or comments on social media or on YouTube videos or something and it just drives you insane uh, and you just think oh don't get me started when you're talking about something like this uh, and today's episode, as we said, is, you know, does Lena equal faster? And one of the things that I guess fires us up, and I think, you know, I'd probably speak for, for most sports dietitians uh, and other people who work uh, within sport and particularly around nutrition, is the way that people talk about body shapes and sizes and um, leanness and, and health and performance. Um, and it's, it's really a, an increasing issue. Um, social media has probably amplified it far more, but you know, you hear people, uh, you know, there, there's the saying in cycling, eating's cheating. Um, mm. you, you hear people saying, oh, you, you're looking lean or, um, oh, geez, they're not looking too lean or or you're looking really fit. Like, what mm. does fit look like? Well, I can't look at someone and work out what their VO2 max is. So how does yeah. looking at someone equal fit? Yeah. Um, which is kind of our, our topic tonight. And um, that kind of language, you know, kind of seems on the surface as pretty innocuous, uh, just a bit of banter or a bit of fun. But the problem is that you don't know that the people you're commenting to or that are reading your comment online, maybe people that have really struggled with body composition or body image or an eating disorder um, or some sort of other mental health issue. And all of a sudden, uh, you've, you've caused them to really have some struggles in their life. Um, so this kind of talk about how people look and equating that to health or performance, uh, as you'll hear tonight, you know, what someone looks like has often got absolutely nothing to do with their health and absolutely nothing to do with their performance. Uh, so we need to stop thinking that way uh, and stop commenting about people in that way um, because it's really doing a lot of damage out there. Um, 
know, we just need to look after each other as a community and um, stop that kind of language. Yeah. See, I didn't get too angry, Steph. Have I, have I convinced you to get a bit angrier about this? Yeah, like um, it, it does, it definitely hits home um, for me um, and it, it is, it's, and we don't even, you know, it's, um, it can be, I don't know, an older, maybe an older generation of thought um, and people don't mean anything necessarily by it, but yeah, you just don't know what people's background is um, and it can trigger things and set things off and so although you may be meaning something in a in a nice way and a compliment. Um, that person may actually take it the other way, and it can actually um, set off like not a not a great experience for them. So, you fired me up, Al. Um, mm. So I think <laughs> but, the bottom line yeah. from that is like you might be thinking something about what the person looks like, or you know anything like that. Just don't say it. No, it doesn't need to be said, no. and it can cause more harm than good. Yeah. Even totally. if you think it's going to be a compliment, it may be completely taken the wrong way. Exactly. Spot on. Good one. I like it. Let's um, get stuck into this topic. And um, yeah, as, as I mentioned, we're, we're super lucky to have this guy chat to us and I'll, I'll let you do the introduction for Gary. Yeah. Yeah. So as we said, our topic today is does Lena equal faster? And so... As soon as we thought about this topic, we thought about only one person that we wanted to get on the podcast for that, and that's because he has really great expertise in body composition assessment and monitoring. Uh, he's worked across a range of sports where he's looked specifically at the impact of um, body composition and physique on performance. Um, uh, and as we said, it's Associate Professor Gary Slater. So Gary uh, is now a fellow of Sports Dietitians Australia. Um, as, as he was, was made a fellow uh, last week at the conference. Um, he's an associate professor at the University of the Sunshine Coast, where he does quite extensive research, as I said, on the measurement and the tracking of body composition in athletes and all different methods used for that. Uh, he's, he's applied that in a lot of different uh, ways. He did his PhD around body composition in lightweight rowers um, at the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, he's gone over to Singapore, as we'll hear shortly, um, and done some work over there. He's worked extensively in rugby union, so looking rather than leaner, it's more around muscle uh, gain um, with the, the Wallabies, the Australian rugby union team. Uh, and he's now working as well as the University of Sunshine Coast. He is the National Performance Nutrition Network lead, uh, and we'll get Gary to explain what that means because it's quite a mouthful and not very obvious when you first hear it, what it actually means. Um, but it's a very impressive title. Uh, and we'll talk to him also um, that part of that role involved um, organising the the food uh, that was sent over um, and also how that was then distributed to our Australian athletes at the Tokyo Olympics uh, and then Paralympics. So Gary was over there for the Olympic Games uh, in the village, manning the... Um, the pantry as they called it and uh, we'll hear a bit about um, what that involved from Gary and uh, how that all sort of played out with the, the nutrition provision for the Australian team at the Olympic Games. Yeah awesome uh, there was a lot of early early mornings and very late nights wasn't there. Mm, absolutely and so you can imagine planning something for I don't know I can't remember exactly how many shipping containers worth of food that they had to organize and send over and get special requests from uh, you know, different um, sports and different athletes and things like that. You can imagine how much work went into that in the lead-up, um, and that's why it's taken us from January to now uh, <laughs> to, to get Gary uh, 
to, to have some time to be able to talk to us about this topic. So it's one we've wanted to do for a long time, uh, but we sort of had to give Gary some space uh, to work on the Olympics and then go through hotel quarantine and decompress a little bit post-games before we could have a good chat to him about it. Excellent. Looking forward to this one. Let's, um, let's do it. Gary Slater, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going up there in Queensland? Yeah, good thanks, Al. Uh, it's starting to warm up a little bit, which um, I struggle with. I, uh, I think of uh, living in, in Queensland of um, nine months in heaven for three months of hell. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, look, it's, it's, it's good, mate. Um, yep. we, we really haven't been impacted too much by COVID, so I feel really blessed. Yeah, yep. Um, and you're obviously on the, on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. You work at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Uh, but in the past, you've worked at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. You've worked over in Singapore for a couple of years as well. Um, but where was home for you originally? Are you from the sunny coast? Um, home it was originally about 500 metres from where I am now, mate. Um, there you go. You know, the fruit doesn't fall very far from the tree. <laughs> uh, grew up on the sunny coast. Um, as you mentioned, um, Moved away for probably the best part of 20 years, had 15 years down in Canberra and uh, four years in um, Singapore. And then there was an opportunity come up to relocate back to the sunny coast to coordinate a master's degree in sports nutrition. And um, I've been on the sunny coast ever since, mate, uh, and really love the, the lifestyle that um, it affords. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and so, as you said, you worked at the AIS, you went away, um, worked with Singapore, I can't remember the official titles, Singapore Sports Institute? That's it, mate. Yep. Yeah, just a, a, a mini version of the AIS. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, and and your role's kind of chopped and changed a bit since you've come back, but part of your role, obviously the university, but also um, the National Nutrition Lead for the Australian Institute of Sport. So what does that actually mean? Like, what does that role involve? But I guess the, the key focus of that role is, is really about facilitating the system of, of sports nutrition practitioners across the country, um, ensuring that, you know, that there's greater efficiencies of practice and that, you know, someone working at Queensland Academy of Sport that's got an interest in, you know, let's say uh, low energy availability feels much more comfortable than being able to pick up the phone, call someone at New South Wales Institute of Sport and say, hey, look, I heard you're doing some work in this space. Let's collaborate. Um, because without that, the facilitation of the network, um, we just have a system that just lacks resource. And we're looking at being able to try and remove as much duplication from that system to create those efficiencies of practice and ensure that we're all tending to work uh, more so as one big happy group. Mm. Yeah, and obviously the um, well, for those who are in Australia are probably aware that that system has become quite decentralised over the last sort of a, probably since the Rio Games really, um, in that you've got as you said the various state academies and institutes of sport, but also in some cases private practitioners that are individually contracted to particular sports. You know myself included with with my role with Triathlon Australia, and there's a whole bunch of similar roles with um, various sports as well. So it's kind of quite spread out now as opposed to what it was maybe five or ten years ago yeah totally mate and that can result in a situation where you've got practitioners that really feel like they're working in isolation and we'd really like everyone to to, to feel like they come under that big, bigger broader banner of working towards um, sports excellence for australia mm, yeah for sure 
Uh, now, part of that role, um, as well as that sort of facilitating within the practitioners in, in Australia, includes the sort of the planning and the provision of nutrition services for uh, the Olympic Games in Tokyo. So you've not been back uh, too long from there, haven't been over yourself. Uh, and I saw a bit on social media, the little kind of supermarket cafe kind of setup you had at the base of the apartment tower in the Olympic Village there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the experience in Tokyo and, and what you did and, and why? Yeah, look, mate, it was something that I, I, I somewhat fell into. Um, I, I originally thought that it was more so a role that would be more suited to, to practitioners that are working with larger numbers of our Olympic athletes. And my role is very much one of facilitating the system rather than being directly hands-on with athletes. Um, but the reality is that a lot of those practitioners that are really heavily embedded in sport were over there working purely for that sport. Uh, and, you know, I came to realise that, you know, that role within the Olympics actually sat very nicely within the approach of being able to facilitate the system because our, our ambition really was to be able to deliver on an environment that would allow the athletes to execute on their performance nutrition plans that have been working with their state-based practitioners. Uh, and so it was actually quite complementary. Um, look, it was it was a long drawn out process, mate. Um, you know, we, we put a lot of work into it um, about twelve months before the original Tokyo twenty twenty, uh, and then everything really went on hold uh, by by March. The original plan was to really to be able to deliver on, I guess, a, a performance cafe, if you like. You know, so many of our athletes are now in that sort of cafe society, and was really about being able to deliver on that. But then we had the, the COVID restrictions come on us and we had to transfer what we'd originally hoped for into something that was a little bit more COVID safe. And so our, you know, breakfast service through the cafe became something that was much more decentralised and there was this really encouraging athletes to have their, their breakfast and some of their snacks within their, their respective units. And so we translated the cafe into effectively a... Um, a performance pantry, and that's what we call it. Um, mm. We're able to, to secure an app that afforded athletes to, to effectively be able to dial in, identify what they want, place the order electronically, um, and then pick that up at any stage into the future. Um, that was complemented by our Refuel Express station, which was um, really a, a space that athletes could come to at any time of the day to be able to get um, prepackaged um snack items or items that they might use for, for breakfast as well you know anything from you know overnight oats birch and muesli through to um you know flavored milks um fresh produce as well and then the, the final option that we had available um, was really targeted towards um food choices available within the, the competition environment so our recovery eskies are, and that's where things like the slushies were ordered through as well as a range of sports foods, as well as um, everyday food items. Mm, okay, so it sounds like some of it is that sort of convenience and having things available at the competition venues, which is obviously really important. Um, and it sounds like the other half of it was sort of you know minimising the time that the athletes would have to actually go to the dining hall and, and interact with people from other countries and that kind of thing in terms of the COVID safety perspective. Yeah, totally. Mate. Look, there, there were some programs where there was a real... Um, hesitancy to, to go into the dining hall. Um, you know, it was the one common touch point for, for 10,000 athletes. 
Uh, and I certainly know going in there myself, there was times where you, you did feel a little bit vulnerable just with the number of people that were in there. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, understandably, we had athletes that, that were hesitant about that and we took those factors into consideration in what we were able to provide within the Aussie Tower. Um, and it, look, the, the feedback was that it was really well received. Um, there was nothing unique or special about it. It was food items that the athletes might normally have at home and there's probably a real connection there as well. Um as providing the convenience for them. So rather than coming back from a competition venue, dropping their equipment off, going back to the dining hall and then coming home to sleep, they could come straight through the um, our area to be able to access appropriate food choices to support their fueling and recovery goals. Mm, yeah, awesome. And I know, you know, from what I've seen of those uh, situations and hearing stories um, from, from those who've worked in similar events in the past, like it's a huge... Like you just start at the crack of dawn and finish falling into bed only to do it again the next day. Did you ever get any downtime to enjoy? I know there was that little setup with the like the deck chairs and the big screens at you know down at the base of the the apartment building there. Did you ever get some downtime during the games? Um, limited mate it really was up at five and, and to bed at eleven. Um, mm. you know I guess with athletes having such varied schedules from, from rowers leaving at five o'clock in the morning through to the boomers coming back at two o'clock in the morning, um, we'd set up a, a bit of a, a shift system so that there was always performance nutrition support available b- between those times to accommodate the athletes. Um, I think I got myself out to, to one event, which was um, the men's hockey final, which unfortunately we, we didn't win. Uh, but look, I you know I knew I wasn't there to, to be able to, to get out to events. It was really about being able to try and provide a service, uh, and we were able to, to to be able to deliver on that thanks to the uh, the collaborations with with other colleagues. Um, two colleagues from N Swiss, uh, Sally Walker and, and Holly Edstein, you know, did a, a wonderful job in, in being able to help to to bring this off. It was again there was, there was nothing you know really unique or special in regards to what was provided. It was everyday food items. The big challenge was just the logistics of it all, being able to deliver um, nutrition support for, for 500 athletes and 100-plus support staff. Mm, yeah, definitely. And hopefully you had a nice 14-day hotel quarantine to rest up a little bit. Uh, yes, mate. Um, quarantine was good. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and today's episode obviously is relating to the links between body composition and performance, particularly in running, cycling and triathlon. But obviously that's an area you've done a lot of research in, you've had a lot of interest in over the years, uh, particularly around sort of body composition. Where does that, where did that interest sort of start with you? Where did that come from? Oh, look, it's probably like most other people, mate, personal agendas. Um, <laughs> I, I still treat myself as a um, and as an evolving little uh, piece of, of research activity, <laughs> uh, always looking at trying to be able to manipulate things or use what I I see in the research and then look at trying to be able to apply it. And I think probably the the, uh, the easiest person to, to start that with, with a case study of one, is always myself. Um uh, look, I guess that's where it started. And then, you know, I was working with sports in which there was a presumption that physique traits were important to competitive success. Uh, when I was at the AIS, I worked primarily with the, the track and field as well as the rowing program. Um, and then, you know, probably throughout the majority of my career, I've done a lot of work within professional rugby union um, where there's, you know, big boys trying to get bigger. Um so it's, it's always been somewhat on the agenda. And then I guess 
the interest in manipulating physique traits uh, evolved into an interest in being able to how we can best monitor those physique traits. Yeah, fair enough. So um, our topic today is does leaner equal faster? Um, that many runners, cyclists and triathletes would probably kind of use the question does lighter equal faster? Does this seemingly subtle change of wording matter um, and why? Um, look, I, Steph, I, I always think of, of weight as being a, um, a pretty blunt tool for being able to help define someone's composition. And I think ultimately it's the composition that is, is likely the most important in sports where physique is associated with competitive success. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's where, you know, the, the interest in, in monitoring body composition rather than just body mass um, what was important for me because obviously fat and lean tissue are, are very, very different tissues and their contribution uh, to performance is, is obviously very different as well. Yeah. Yep. And does the effect of body weight or, or leanness, leanness more so influence running and, and cycling differently? Um. If you put them both down as, you know, gravitational endurance sports, um, you would expect that there will be a a potential similar effect on performance if there is an effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess that the premise is that being lighter and leaner will help to enhance a person's power-to-weight ratio. Mm -hmm. When they've got to be able to carry that weight around, it helps to create um, efficiencies for that person, whether that be running or riding. Mm -hmm. That just needs to be balanced against the impact on lean mass, which is generating the, the power, mm. but also other factors such as the person's ability to be able to fuel and recover. Um, and I think that, that identifying where that point is of, yes, you're at a body composition where making adjustments might result in performance benefits, and then also where making further adjustments won't result in any further benefits or may actually have some compromises mm. is really difficult to be able to identify. And, and I think that's where the routine monitoring of an athlete's body composition can help answer that question, but especially if it's undertaken at a time point in which the person's performance or fitness traits are also being assessed. Mm. Yep, yep. Um and it's it's common for you know the recreational runners, cyclists, and triathletes to use a race, I guess, as motivation for them to lose body fat um, as part of their kind of training process, um, possibly for health and aesthetic reasons, but also with the expectation that leaner does equal faster. Um, it's also common for elite and professional athletes to plan their body composition over a year to be at their target body comp um, at the time of their key competitions. So what are the theoretical physiological benefits of, I, I guess, that leanness for running performance? So if a, if a person's carrying less body fat, then presumably um, there's an enhancement of their power-to-weight ratio. Um, there, there might also be other benefits in regards to thermoregulation when we think about you know, how a person manages um, their, their core temperature. Obviously, we've got a sweat response, but there's also peripheral vasodilation. Now, 
if we store body fat subcutaneously or below the, the skin surface, mm. that peripheral vasodilation uh, won't be as effective if there is a more significant layer of fat just below, below the, the skin surface. Mm. I think that the challenge in this space um, is confirmation that there's actually a connection between change in physique and change in um, performance. And there's very, very little research to actually show the connection between both. We know that acutely, like if, if you put on um, a weighted vest, for example, and you go and do uh, a, a yo-yo test or you do vertical jumps, we get an immediate compromise in an exercise performance or, or those, those fitness traits. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't tell us how a person would respond if they were training with that vest continuously. So it's, it's a really difficult question to be able to answer. You know, will me getting leaner result in an enhancement of performance? Mm. Uh, I know it sounds so simple, but, you know, it takes a long period of time to be able to achieve those changes. Mm. And we during that time, there's obviously a, a significant um, change in fitness traits as well. Mm. And brings us back to the question I was asking before in regards to at what point um, does becoming leaner result in enhanced performance? And I think there's certainly anecdotally enough to suggest that someone who's over fat to reduce their body fat levels is likely to result uh, in an enhancement of running economy or cycling and economy, yeah. an enhancement of their performance. But there's also on the, on the counter of that people that are, that are lean enough that then go, I need to get leaner. Mm. But to do that, they start to compromise fueling and recovery goals. Training quality is not as good. Recovery is not as good. And the end result is not an improvement in performance. Mm. And then we've all got all of these other ancillary issues that might result from a sustained period of low energy availability. Mm. Yep, yep. Um, and so I guess it sounds like you've you've really just got to individualise that, don't you, for, for the athlete and then, like you said, track it over time in terms of with body composition changes and then tracking performance seems like that's kind of the best way. Um, At an individual level, Steph, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the more times you can connect an assessment of physique traits with an assessment of fitness traits, the greater your ability as an athlete or as a, as a practitioner to be able to get some sort of inference in regards to, well, this is the direction that we're moving in from a physique trait perspective. Mm. And it appears to be connected with an improvement in overall performance. Mm. Now, obviously, there's many factors mm. that are contributing to performance success, um, but it, it'll help to provide better guidance. And then, you know, once we t you know, find that supposed sweet spot for the athlete, if that's quantified for them, then it can be a benchmark for them in moving forward yep. for, for future competitions. Do you find, Gaz, like from your experience, if you've worked with athletes over a, quite a long period of time of their career, do you find that they kind of figure that out themselves over time? Like they work out, okay, well, I get to this point and I perform really well, but if I try and push it beyond that in terms of getting even leaner, I don't see any further performance benefit and that's that kind of sweet spot? Or do you think that people never quite figure that out most of the time? Oh, I think that's a, a very well-educated and very experienced athlete you're mm. talking about there, mm. Alan. And clearly that's probably a person that's actually gone and taken it too far, mm. has recognised mm. the, the performance detriment associated with it and can come and find some middle ground. 
you know, what I do like is the, the, the comment that, that Steph had mentioned before. And again, this comes with, I think, an experienced athlete where they periodize uh, their physique traits as well. And they might only get themselves to a level of leanness that they might associate with competitive success um, once or twice in the year. Uh, and at other times can really always put as the priority being able to support fueling and recovery goals. Mm. I remember talking to, I did a, an article for Cycling Tips years ago now, and we asked, I think, four or five pros um, something along these lines, and, and yet a few of them had sort of said that they felt that they got to that stage where the weight loss had gone too far. And I guess with cycling, because you've got power meters, it's a bit more... Uh, trackable from a data perspective in terms of what that effect is uh, and then others talked about the fact that you know not every race of the year has you know a lot of uphill or that's yeah. not your specialty you might be a sprinter or something like that uh, or racing you know Paris-Roubaix this weekend it's you know hard cobblestones it's you know it's a power event not a, a power to weight event um, and so for them they definitely felt that you know going too light they started to, to lose power um, running it might be a bit I guess more intangible to try and figure that out compared to cycling. Yeah, it's certainly easy to be able to quantify when you can look at that power output. And because you know, one of the um, the things that a person's vulnerable to as they get leaner and leaner is they're not just dropping fat mass. They're much more vulnerable to losses of lean tissue, and ultimately, it's the lean tissue that is generating the power. Mm. Yeah. And so your your expertise is in body composition. Well, you've got a lot of expertise, but um, it's in body composition assessment and tracking. So how do you recommend um, listeners should think about this and what um, tools or services would you recommend um, over others? Steph, I've, I've gone full circle on this. Um, look, I think the, the, the regular monitoring of body composition for, for athletes can be really valuable but it's not something that you know we want to obsess over uh, and we also need to recognize that every single tool has got noise associated with it and so it's it's probably inappropriate to have someone being assessed on a on a really really regular basis um, you know I've in an extreme situation you know I've I've done you know physique assessments less than than once a month but typically it would be once a month or longer um, mm. depending on the time the person's got available and if they're actually trying to manipulate their body composition um, oh, I, I come from a I guess a, a strong background in regards to the use of surface anthropometry I did my level one course in 1995 um, and it's still something that I would use on, on a you know, at least a weekly basis with the um, the athletes that I work with. Mm -hmm. um, if, I, if I tell you a story associated with, with things at the AIS, mm -hmm. um, working with the, the rowing program, you know, we were doing skin folds as part of a, of a battery of broader tests on the athletes. But we started to get a sense from the athletes that they perceived having their skin folds done as a fat test. And I can guarantee you, especially working with the rowers, um, that my interest was just as much at looking at changes in lean tissue as it was with with um, with fat mass, but because we're doing skin folds and you know from that inferring changes in lean tissue, they perceive skinnies as the fat test, and so we made the transition to start to do full anthropometric profiles on the athletes, and so that's not just skin folds, it's lengths, it's breadths, it's girths. Because from that, um, we could use a process called fractionation to be able to get an estimation 
of their body fat, of their skeletal muscle mass. Um, and that worked well. But I started to ask questions in regards to how sensitive it was to be able to pick up small but potentially important changes in both fat and lean mass because it was getting those estimates of fat and lean mass from a relatively small number of, of variables um, across only different components of the, of the body. So we made the transition into um, the, the investment of, of using DEXA. Mm. Um, and, and I've spent a, a long period now um, looking at the, the use of DEXA for, for tracking physique traits. And DEXA can be a really, really valuable tool when you need an absolute estimate of body composition. What's the fat mass of this person? What's the muscle or the, the lean mass of this individual? Mm-hmm. Um, but it requires a whole lot of boxes to be ticked, both from the technician but also the athlete presenting for, for testing. And so what do I advocate for routine monitoring of body composition for an athlete that is perhaps on a journey to manipulate their body composition? Mm-hmm. I'm really, really happy to just have them um, assessed using a waking body mass and a summer seven skin folds. Yep. Um, Skin folds in the hand of a really hands of a really experienced technician. There's probably no more robust measure than that. The challenge is um, that you don't get an absolute measure of, of fat mass or lean mass when you do skin folds. But if I can have an understanding of where a person's waking body mass is and the changes in their summer seven skin folds, I can get a really good indication of the changes in their body composition that are occurring. And that just then allows me to be able to further personalise my dietary intervention for that person to, to bring them closer to the goals they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, and I guess um, for our listeners, like um, particularly the recreational um, athletes, they um, would probably come across, uh, you know, the... Um, the body impedance um, scans at the gym. Um, I guess just a bit of insight for our listeners in terms of how um, appropriate and insightful those um, machines are. Yeah, look, we, we did a um, published a study, I think, last year looking at exactly that. Um, pretty simple. Uh, we just got a, a group of individuals and we used DEXA, BODPOD, which is kind of the new age mm. version of underwater weighing, um, impedance, um, and we then tested the people again 24 hours later yep. um, as well as doing it immediately after. And so what you get from that is your ability to pick up uh, technical error, mm-hmm. um, which you would get from just having a person tested and retested straight away because nothing can truly happen mm. with their physique traits. And then by doing it a day later, we also introduced the potential for being able to quantify the biological error. You know, Small changes in gastrointestinal tract content, small changes in hydration status, muscle glycogen, etc. Um, and we use that between-day measure to be able to get an indication of what we'd call the precision error of the technique. Um, what sort of change in the person's body composition have you got to get um, to, to say with some assurance that it's been a real change? Mm. Uh, and look, unfortunately, with the impedance device that we used, um, it had a between-day precision error in excess of three kilos for both fat and lean mass. Now, what does that mean in, in layman's terms? 
That means the person has to have a change of fat and lean of greater than three kilos before we can say with confidence there's been a real change. Mm. And, and so we get to a point there, Steph, where it, it's impractical to be able to use that yeah. because for me to be able to get a three kilo change in fat mass might take, you know, two or three months. Mm. It's like, well, the person only gave me 12 weeks to be able to get these body composition changes. Um, without that tool to be able to assess the efficacy of my intervention, then it becomes, you know, really impractical to be able to use. Whereas if we come back to the use of skin folds, you know, I've got a precision error of just over a mil for a summer seven skin fold. So it's got really, really good precision. It just doesn't give us that absolute measure of, of fat and lean. But there's not too many situations where I actually need that absolute measure. You know, yeah. maybe if it was a person in a weight category sport where I need to get an indication of their total fat mass and how much lean they've got. But generally it's about tracking trends and which enables us as practitioners to be able to further manipulate their dietary intake to bring, bring them closer to where they want to be. Yeah. Um, and have you ever encountered a scenario where muscle mass loss has been seen as being desirable to reduce body weight in an endurance athlete? Um, or has it only ever been kind of focused on, on body fat as such? Um, I've certainly come across situations where there's been endurance athletes that are just naturally much more mesomorphic or mm. carry more lean tissue mm -hmm. and that desire to, to potentially drop some tissue. Uh, to, to the, 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 ad, the added confounder is a person wanting site-specific loss of lean tissue. I guess, you know, Al, you might have some experiences there with your, um, your road cyclists. You know, my understanding of road cyclists that pretty happy to hang on to their lower body lean mass, but as long as they've got enough muscle mass in their upper body to hang on to the handlebars, they're pretty happy. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, looked at you know strategies there, obviously from a resistance training perspective or avoidance of resistance training, but then, you know, targeted sessions where you might provide nutrition support and recovery and those that you don't. Um, historically, when I've, I've seen those sort of strategies applied, that they haven't necessarily been so successful. Mm -hmm. But, but guaranteed, you know, if, if a person um, is, is naturally much more uh, muscular and they get very lean, they will drop lean mass as well as fat mass. Mm. Mm. I was going to say, I've seen that a couple of times, in, but in people that have transitioned from one sport to another. So um, as you said, you know, in cycling, generally upper body muscle is not seen as particularly desirable. So uh, I remember one, uh, one young guy who transitioned from rowing to cycling uh, and that was certainly a potential concern there. Uh, and another female athlete who transitioned from surf lifesaving into triathlon, similar kind of scenario. Um, but in both of those, um, yeah, I think in the end, there wasn't a specific nutrition strategy. And I think generally speaking, it only takes a bit longer, maybe a couple of seasons, you know, the body, body shape kind of adapts to the training, the type of training that you're doing over time anyway, without really having to sort of intentionally chase it, if that makes sense. Is that your experience as well, Gaz? Yeah, look, I, I think it's it's about giving context to it all, Al. Like nutrition is important, but relative to the exercise stimulus, it's a relatively small um, contributor. And so mm. the, the examples you provide there with athletes making the transition away from different sports, 
that exercise stimulus is progressively removed and thus the retention of that lean mass um, progressively dissipates with time because they're simply not loading those muscles to the same degree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I guess the, the final thing to sort of discuss is, I guess, the consequences of when people try, I guess, too hard to be leaner or lighter, depending on, on their view on things. Uh, and this can happen with athletes of all different levels, you know, from recreational right through to, you know, professional or elite level, where they try to reduce their body weight for their sport using, you know, a variety of strategies, whether it's, you know, training more, whether it's, um, you know, restricting what they're eating, whatever. Um, so I guess you sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, but what are the potential downsides when people try too hard to get lean or try to do it too quickly? Yeah, look, I, I think in the, in the short term it can be um, getting changes in physique that, that they perhaps don't perceive as being ideal, where there's, there's makes them vulnerable to losses of lean tissue, and as you alluded to before, that that, that might have an impact on their power generating capacity. Um, even you know more short term than that, then you know the, these issues associated with underfueling and, and poor recovery and just training quality is being compromised. And you know if you look at the the things that help to facilitate training adaptations, one of the most powerful things is the amount of work a person can do within a session. You remove the fuel availability, then you, you make the person vulnerable um, to an impairment in, in training quality. Um, sustained for long enough, then obviously we get these issues associated with sustained low energy availability where there isn't enough fuel available after the energy expenditure associated with exercise to maintain normal physiological function. And, you know, that that then leaves a person vulnerable to, um, to, to REDS. And, you know, it can obviously have um, both performance and, and health implications, neither of which are, are very good. Yeah. And then the, the thing that I, I guess I've become much more conscious of um, in recent years is, is the psychological implications of those as well, um, where, you know, people are at increased risk of, of things like disordered eating, um, and that, you know, is something that can, you know, stay with a person for a very, very long period of time. So it, I think if anyone's interested in being able to explore this issue in regards to, you know, where is the, the optimal physique for me for my sport and, and to, to, to optimise my performance, while weight loss can be considered a relatively easy concept, I think it's actually far more complex than, than what people give it credit for. And as a consequence, I would really, really encourage people to be going to reach out uh, and engage with a sports dietitian who can help to 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 walk that that fine line between giving an opportunity to be able to manipulate their physique traits to perhaps identify where that sweet spot is, but doing it in a manner where there is always consideration given to their physiological and psychological health. Yeah. No, very well said. And I know the AIS have been doing a lot of work in that space recently, um, some new guidelines around sort of disordered eating in athletes and, and that sort of thing as well. And, and I think both that and, and that concept of energy availability and REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport that you touched on before, are certainly topics that uh, we've got planned to do future future podcasts about, which would be great. Yeah, really interesting spaces, mate. Look, there's many ways that you can work around that that might help to, 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 to moderate the potential for that, making sure that the rate of weight loss is 
is slow or identify specific times where it might be appropriate to allow the person to create that negative energy balance to be able to support fat loss. Uh, you know, I've had some, some really interesting experiences with athletes with taking an intermittent approach to, uh, to energy restriction. Now, that's not intermittent fasting or anything like that. But just going through little blocks of actually putting a person into a negative energy balance for one or two weeks at a time and then putting them back into energy balance so that we maintain their weight for a couple of weeks. Uh, and that had you know, emerged out of some, some research that a colleague who originally at Queensland University of Technology had started to explore with an overweight and obesity population. Um, and that could be a strategy that people start to, to give consideration to. But, you know, one of, um, of several tools that a sports dietitian could work with an athlete on to, to be able to do it in a manner where we really help to be able to minimise the negative implications of weight loss. Okay, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now, and she's going to finish us off with our bonus round. Woohoo! This is the bit where we get to find out a little bit about you, Gaz, um, what you've been doing in quarantine. Um, so if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, um, what would it be? Are you in quarantine right now? No, no. I, uh, I've had my two weeks in quarantine. Oh, nice. um, so I'm back out, you know, socialising. I can go down to the coffee shop and get coffee. What would I be doing? Um, look, there was aspirations of being a professional surfer, but that, that fell by the wayside. You um, and Coxie are um, in competition for professional surfing. That was his response as well. Yep, I could, I could totally have a, a crack at that. Um, <laughs> the other one might be a, um, a barista. Oh, but I, good. I, yeah, look, start at 5, finish at 12, surf the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> It holds a lot of attraction, yeah. um, and, and I presume I'd get free coffee. <laughs> You'd hope but so. If I'm, if I'm being straight up, um, I'd probably be an architect. Um, I, I really love architecture. Yeah, right. Have you built your own house? I have. Have you? I have. Oh, nice, and it's still holding up, so it looks like you could be a good architect. <laughs> I didn't build it. I have no skills with my hands. Okay. <laughs> so what about your favourite moment from, from the Olympics or the Paralympics? I know that's going to be a hard one to answer. Um, look, I, I think my most favourite moment was probably from Rio 2016 um, with the, the final of the wheelchair rugby. I think it was between the Aussie boys and, and the USA. Um, I, I've never been to a sporting event that created so much atmosphere and got the crowd so involved and it was just such an exciting um, game to watch and finish with the Aussies winning. And it was just, just magic. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and what's the sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? Oh, that's a toughie. <laughs> the one that often comes up for me is that, you know, I... I I spent 12 years working with the rowing program at the AOS. Yeah. I did a PhD in rowing. I've never spent a minute in a rowing boat. <laughs> so you reckon you might want to give that a crack or you just feel like you need to? I just feel like I'm compelled. I, I, I have no aspirations, to be honest. Yep. You know, <laughs> funny story, when I first started working with rowing and um, 
We were doing some lactates uh, at the end of the TK race. Uh, we're out at Penrith, and I can remember seeing first athlete cross the line, and you know they've kind of fallen out of their boat, and you know you could hear them, you know, with with massive, um, you know, respiratory rates, mm. and you know that they're dry reaching, etc. And I was thinking, oh, tosser, can't be that hard. And then you know, <laughs> the next race goes through, and this person's vomiting at the end of it. I was like, oh shit, there might be something in this. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, t- tough gig. Yeah, tough gig. yeah, doesn't sound appealing at all. Um, something you can't live without. Uh, caffeine. Yep, yep, yep. I reckon, no question, yeah, straight up. Yep, most popular response I think we've got for that now. Yep, definitely. definitely. Yep. For sure. And do you live by any piece of advice or, um, or motto? Um, I'm a geeky scientist, mm-hmm. absolute geeky scientist. Everything that I try and do is evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still an absolute firm believer in karma yeah. and doing to others. Yep. Just be nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we asked yes. Louise in our very first episode and she basically said, don't be a dick, yep. which is pretty much the same thing, <laughs> but just very much the way Louise would say it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think awesome. the thing she couldn't live without was that chocolate. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it would yeah, have to be. be. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, doesn't have, it doesn't have the caffeine of a coffee, though, but you know, <laughs> everyone's got their own vices. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Gaz. Um, we had a, a specific request for this topic from a listener, you know, way back in March. But obviously, with the Olympics coming up, you're a, a very busy man. So it's uh, great to to get you on the podcast and and get your expertise and and your your knowledge around this topic. Uh, and I'm sure Lionel, who requested this, will be very happy to to hear it. So um, yeah, thanks so much for your time, Gaz. And uh, hopefully, you get a bit more R and R post Tokyo. Mm. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. That was great. Thank you so much, Gary. And um, I'm going to leave it to our genius of a summariser um, that we all know. Uh, leave it to Alan just to just to give us the the key messages from from chatting to Gary. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess our topic was just leaner equal faster. Uh, and as we said in the um, in the interview there with Gary, you know, sometimes people think just lighter equal faster, and there is a bit of a difference between lighter and leaner. Um, lighter obviously implying that it's total body weight that's important, leaner implying that it's your know, body fat specifically as opposed to total body weight. Uh, and that might be different in different contexts. Obviously, if you're riding a bike up a mountain, total body weight's important because gravity is acting against that and, and to some degree with um, with running as well because you've got to move your body weight um, you know, across across the ground. Um, but that said, as, as Gary um, well pointed out, you know, if you're trying to, to quote-unquote lose weight, uh, you want to make sure that that's body fat because if you're losing muscle along the way, you're actually losing the ability to generate power. Uh, and so you can be in a situation where, yes, you might be lighter, but you're not necessarily more powerful. And so, you know, the, the power-to-weight ratio, which is maybe what you're trying to improve, well, you've lowered the weight, but you've potentially lowered the power as well. So you just need to be a little bit yeah. careful about that. So, you know, for recreational athletes that are carrying significant amounts of body weight, uh, sorry, body fat, um, that's less likely to be an issue. But I guess someone who is a more competitive athlete or someone who's already reasonably lean and is wanting to get even leaner under the assumption that lighter equals faster, that's when things can start to 
to fall apart a little bit um, because you lose that um, body mass, uh, sorry, the muscle mass. And then I guess the other thing, as Gary pointed out, is that it's not only the, the body composition you end up at, but it's also the process that you go through to get there. So if you get to the stage where, you know, you're, you're desperately trying to lose um, body fat for whatever reason, you know, whether that's a, a good reason or not, but, you know, if you're then underfueling your training and not recovering properly because you're not putting enough in before and after training, for example, and during, um, then your training starts to suffer. And so if your training starts to suffer, yes, you might be leaner, but you not may not be faster because you're not training as well um, and not getting the benefits of the actual training itself. And so, you know, it's, it's not as simple as, you know, let's lose weight and we'll be quicker. You know, in some cases it can be, but it's, it's not guaranteed. And so you need to think about all of those those things in context and then finally you know the, the process isn't just about fueling and recovery you know there's the whole emotional and psychological aspect to food and, and eating um and we just need to be a bit wary about that because um you know once we start to add body image and things into that equation uh, or becoming you know, overly obsessive with body composition then things can go pear-shaped quickly uh and more often than not you know someone with um disordered eating or a full-blown eating disorder Yes, their performance might be okay for a while, but it's going to fall apart eventually, and um, that's definitely not going to be faster. Or if you're sick all the time, that's not going to be faster either. Yeah, and and also I think um, even if you are like aiming towards um, manipulating your body composition, um, I don't know if it's an athlete thing, um, but we don't always have the best patience sometimes. Um, so try not to um, be like, okay, I need to get here and I'm going to like do it within one or two weeks. Um, you know, um, we really want to plan, um, plan that path out um, so that we can make sure we're doing it in a, a real sensible manner and then also actually getting towards the, the actual goals that we're wanting to in terms of body composition and we're not losing um, a whole heap of um, what we actually want to keep on us. Mm. I think the final thing I'd add to that is that you know, if, if you're someone who is set on trying to reduce body fat or, or total body weight as a method of improving your performance, whether it's running, cycling or triathlon, um, as we said, this is a complex issue. It's not as simple as just eat less, get leaner and you'll be faster um, because of all of those other factors. So if you're not sure of how to do that, that's probably a good prompt to get in touch with a professional who can help you with that. They can help, you know, look at the body composition side of things, make sure, you know, your, your relationship with food is still healthy, um, but also trying to work out, you know, are you trying to push things too far in terms of body fat loss? Uh, but also, I guess, if you're trying to go through that process, how can you do that uh, and minimise uh, the, the potential compromise in your training, performance and recovery? So there's obviously strategies that you can use to manipulate what you're eating in terms of the time of the day and that periodization of what you're eating to make sure that you're still fueling those key training sessions. Um, and so there's a lot to it. It's, it's complex. Uh, and so don't be afraid to reach out for professional help on that kind of thing um, because that can make the big difference between, uh, you know, what I often hear and people come to me describe, uh, it might be like a triathlete, will say, you know, I'm doing 20 hours a week of training and I can... I can eat less and lose weight. That's not a problem. But then my training falls apart. Or I can eat to fuel my training properly, but then I can't reduce body fat like I think I should be able to. So how can I do both of those things at once? And and that's where you know the expertise of a sports dietitian 
can help manage those two things simultaneously if it's appropriate and um, and in a way that's going to be um, not detrimental to their health or their performance. Well said, well said. Just in terms of uh, social media, again, um, please, yeah, give us a shout out if you've got any questions or any feedback, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we are on all your popular um uh, uh, podcast platforms um, but following up from this episode Alan we have been very fortunate to get a um, a track athlete that has uh, competed just recently in the Olympics um, and her name is Izzy Bat Doyle. Mm. Yeah absolutely so she competed in the, the 5,000 metres in Tokyo uh, for the Australian team um, and someone who probably if you follow sort of distance running, uh, you know, middle distance running, uh, you'll be very familiar with that name, um, particularly in the last couple of years. She's been at the pointy end of the field around sort of the domestic scene in Australia over the last sort of 18 months or so and then obviously has taken that internationally as well. Um, but we'll discuss with her sort of, I guess, her relationship between sort of body composition and performance and how that's changed over her career. Some of the experiences that she's had with that, both good and bad. Uh, she was a runner in the US college system for a while as well and, and some of the experiences she's had there. So, yeah, I think a fascinating episode. Um, mm. I think she gave some really good insights into that. Um, and, yeah, great to, to hear from someone, you know, post-Olympics as well. Exactly. And even better, what is it? Where's she from? Oh, your hometown. <laughs> you always love when we interview someone from Adelaide, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> speaking that's, speaking that's... of Adelaide, yeah. one of our previous guests, Jess Stenson, had yeah. a great weekend just recently. We should have mentioned this at the start of the episode. We, yeah, we should have, Al. We should have. She had a killer of a, of a race in um, Perth. Um, and she was, I think, was it a 45 second PB? About that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 225 um, something. I can't remember the, yep. the seconds. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I think it was something in the top five fastest Australian yes. female marathon performances and the fastest on Australian soil by an Australian. Yep, yep. So, yeah, I mean, South Aussies, that's where it's at. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, Jess. <laughs> Well done, Jess. Good run. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think it's been a, would have been a hard road for her as well, you know, not being able to um, go go to the Olympics and compete there. And, um, you know, he's just recently formed a, a, a beautiful family and, um, and, yeah, being able to then put this one out there, it's a fantastic result for her. Mm, absolutely. Mm. All right, well, Excellent. we might wind it up there, Steph, um, and hopefully everyone will enjoy next week's episode with Izzy Bat Doyle. But, again, big thanks to Gary for this one. And, uh, yeah, we'll see everyone next week. See everyone. <laughs>